0: Well, do grab hold of a Bible again, if you turn back to page 509, to Job uh, chapter 1. If you like taking notes, there should be a little handout, if that's helpful for you, that gives you an outline of the sermon, please uh, use that if you want to. Uh, There are some things in life that are pick-me-ups, aren't they? And there are other things that are more sort of build-me-ups. Coffee, chocolate, mid-morning snacks, pick-me-ups. And they'll see you through the next hurdle. But you really don't want to rely on them um, for the long term. They they make you feel good for the short term. But you need the build-me-ups to be really healthy. Uh, Things that are full of solid nourishment. Uh, They don't often offer the same buzz as comfort food, do they? You feel they're a bit boring. Uh, But in the long term, they really do make you healthy. I think even as Christians, it's possible... It's possible to develop a taste for the spiritual equivalent of comfort food and to rely on quick fixes that give a buzz. A job that we're studying over the next uh, five weeks lands on our plates. And if you've read through it, initially it looks as appetizing as cold Brussels sprouts the day after Christmas. Can I say to you, just as we start, please don't start to crave spiritual comfort food now. There is in this book the real nourishment of grace as we consider suffering in the life of Christians. I'm really glad many of you are studying it in home groups and for others it would be good to read it in chunks alongside Sunday evenings and chew over this meal God has given us. Let me just give you three initial reasons why it's good to study this book. First of all, it's, it's a book to silence ignorant talk about God. For some people, when you mention the God of the Bible or being a Christian, the look is almost one of disbelief. Uh, Why would rational adults believe fairy tales? Uh, The Christmas star, Easter eggs, very pretty, but not life in the real world. Uh, The feeling is, this God has no relevance for me. Well, in these next 42 chapters of this book, God presents us with a human story that is excruciating personal tragedy that is very real and God says you may face this and I have relevant words for you see he may be a God who provides wonder in the joy of the Christmas story but he's not about fairy tales Our faith in God is built for life in the real world uh, secondly this is a book that will uh, prepare us for suffering uh, for many of us life's been good really good school's good uni is great isn't it Uh, First paychecks, for those of you just starting work, it is good to get that first paycheck and book that holiday you've been looking forward to. Are those of you just having children, getting her measured for her first shoes, they're tiny. It's good. Oh, we've had disappointments. Uh, When I was 14, Wendy didn't want to go out with me. Actually, neither did Ruth, Diane or Linda. (laughs) Amanda and Amy turned me down as well. They seem like tragedies. But even drama kings and queens, no, they're only minor disappointments. Actually, looking back on it, I feel more disappointing for them now than for me. (laughs) It is good though, isn't it, if life has brought you good things. It is good. But Job will prepare you for more. See, the career you've worked so hard at and you're called in to be told uh, your department's being downsized, it's not just a job. You know it's your age as well. You know you've become less employable and the future looks bleak. It's a young woman standing in the shower singing along with Radio 1, feeling part of the fun of the show and as she's washing under her arm her fingers feel a lump in her breast. Uh, The radio show continues but she doesn't feel part of it anymore. She doesn't even feel the lump anymore. The only thing she's feeling is alone. It's the stupid argument between you and the wife and when about when you're going to paint the spare room that's irritatingly interrupted by the phone call just when you were going to make that devastating blow that would take all the life out of her complaint. And as she starts shaking and drops the phone, you suspect as you start to feel your own heart pounding That this unknown caller has delivered a devastating blow you could never match. And the life you loved from day one has gone. See, how will you cope if that happens? And Job wants to prepare you. And thirdly, this is a book to comfort us in calamity. And Nicholas Wolterstorff uh, writes in his book reflecting on the loss of his son in a mountaineering accident. What do you say to someone who's suffering? Some are gifted with words of wisdom. Some blurt out strange, inept things. and oh, that's okay too. Your words don't have to be wise. The heart that speaks is heard more than the words that are spoken. And if you can't think of anything to say, just say, I can't think of anything to say. Or even just embrace. Not even the best words can take away the pain. But please don't say it's not really so bad because it is. What I need to hear from you is that you recognize how painful it is to comfort me. You have to come close. Come sit beside me. See, if you're facing the pain of calamity, Job will come close and sit with you. And through his message, you will find the God of Job unseen has come close too. So let's meet the man. He's there in verses 1 to 5. We're introduced to him and from verse 1, the Bible seems to be at pains to say, he's good. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. And he's a big man. Uh, Verses 2 and 3 just shout out size, don't they? I mean, how much livestock do you need? 11,500 animals. A 500 ploughing pairs of oxen suggests huge amounts of crops. His staff would be vast. Well, you, you read on in this book, you will discover the kind of boss he is. In chapter 31, in verse 13, he will say, If I have denied justice uh, to my servants when they had grievances against me, what will I do when God confronts me? And later on in that chapter, he will say, If I put my trust in gold or said to pure gold, You are my security. I would have been unfaithful to god see the implication is he hasn't done those things see here's a boss who'll listen to your complaints even when they're against him see here's a boss who doesn't let profit become the only thing that drives his business here's a big man you can respect and he's not just big in business ten children seven sons three daughters See, not wanting to be vulgar, but here's at least one wife who hasn't spent many cold nights alone in bed while her husband was working late. So poor woman, by the sounds of things, she's married a man who works all day and doesn't come to bed tired. And he is a family man as well. Doesn't verse 4 just give you a wealth of information about Job's family? His sons used to take turns Holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite the three sisters to eat and drink with them. A children who have grown up have their own homes now, and they've grown into mature independence. So, these feasts in verse 4, one translation suggests it's their birthdays. Boys that remember birthdays. Is that not incredible? To children who have grown up and really enjoy life. And brothers and sisters who really love and enjoy each other. And as Job offers a sacrifice for them in verse 5, he says, Perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. I understand what that tells you. These aren't children who have given up living for God. These are, are children who have all grown up to love and live for God. Job's, Job's sacrifice and prayer is just in case, in some youthful exuberance they sin. Now, this is what every parent hopes for: a family that grows up like this—success and love and fun and knowing God. See, I've never met them, but as I've been reading about them this week, I love Job's family. I'd love to spend time with them. I'd love to see the way their dad treated them. But Actually, it's the next thing about Job that I find most moving. He's a humble man, verse 5. Offering a sacrifice for his children. And I imagine it's the same way he'd offered sacrifices for himself. It's a burnt offering. That's a, a sacrifice for sin. It's here that you begin to understand the kind of blamelessness that Job has. It's not the blamelessness of a man who says he's never done anything wrong. It's, it's the blamelessness of a man who freely acknowledges that he has and does. It's the blamelessness of a man who confesses his sin to God and has found that God, in his grace, has provided a sacrifice to deal with his blame. There's nothing outstanding between Job and God. His sins have been forgiven, and God says, blameless. See, here's a big man, a family man, who regularly kneels before the altar of God's great grace and prays, O oh Lord, forgive my sin. Make me blameless in your sight. Not because of my own righteousness, but only through the righteousness you give me, through the sacrifice you've provided and if my wife or my children, who I've tried to teach to love and fear you, have offended you in any way, please have mercy on them because of that same sacrifice. For husbands and fathers, is that your approach to God and to your families? Do I have so much to learn from Job in just five verses? I'd love to have spent time with him. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Godliness like this. It's attractive, isn't it? You realize, as we read, I'm sure, Job doesn't get the same insight that we do. He hears nothing of verses 6 to 12. Uncalled for, unwanted, but most of all, verses 13 to 19 are totally unexpected four quick-fire reports of disaster. The first and the third, the apparent results of human evil, the Sabians and the Chaldeans. The second and the fourth, he's left looking at the consequences of freak natural disasters. And don't both kinds raise in different ways that same question? Why would this happen? The first three will leave him financially ruined, the last one emotionally devastated. All ten children crushed to death. The pain is even more distressing when you realize that family love is the very thing that caused Job to lose every one of them in a single day. Because it's their love for each other that guaranteed they'd all be in the same place. See, so how painful is it when your loved one's suffering seems to come at them because of their goodness? There's so much the story doesn't say. I assume the writer anticipates we can join the dots. At breaking the news to his wife. The searching for broken bodies. You let your mind wander over all the things that Job would need to do and you realize the horror of this story is more gut-wrenching implicitly than it is explicitly. And then one day it starts. Chapter 2, verse 7. A tender spot on his leg, another one between his toes that rubs as he walks, and they spread and spread and spread till he can't move for pain and pus and blood. The desire to scratch that is only rewarded with agony every time he attempts some relief. To what does the Bible say to those who set out to love and live for God? What does the Bible say in the face of those horrible, lying preachers of a prosperity gospel that says Christians should always expect to be healthy and wealthy? Dear friends, it says with many tears in this life, calamity can suddenly come, even to the home of the good, even to the home of those whom God says are forgiven, And blameless. Why? Why? Isn't that the question? Of why does this happen? And why wasn't losing his children enough? Why would a loving God allow more? Plenty of Christians have given well-meaning answers. They comfort by saying, this suffering was never God's intention. We shouldn't think that in any way he designed this, but reading one author this week, I read... It is a great sadness when sufferers seek relief by sparing God his sovereignty over pain. The sadness is that it undercuts the very hope it aims to create. When all 42 chapters of the book of Job are said and done, the inspired author leaves us with an unshakable and undoubted fact. God governs all things for his good purposes. It is folly to try and lighten the ship of suffering by throwing God's governess overboard. What makes the crush of calamity sufferable is not that God shares our shock but that his bitter providences are laden with the bounty of love. See, for those of us who would ask why on earth would God allow such suffering? The God of Job says come and see. Come and see at least part of the answer. And it's not found on earth but in heaven. Well, that's verses 6 to 12, isn't it? The, the angels have come before the Lord, and Satan's there too. Now, for some, the idea of angels and a Satan feels like the realm of fantasy. But if that's you, can I say, before you dismiss this, it, it shouldn't be that implausible. So if you're willing to consider the existence of a God who creates everything that can be seen, then it's at least possible this same God might have also created powers that are unseen to us. We wouldn't be so arrogant as to say that the whole of life is about us. Now, the Bible is not embarrassed to say there is a spiritual realm and spiritual forces. Forces that have a will, can be good and evil, and have real influence. And God invites us to see something of what they're doing and how it relates to Job's suffering. There's that conversation, isn't there? Verse 7. And where have you been, saying? Satan. Oh, you know, here and there. Just mooching around your world. Verse 8. Have you seen Job? There's no one like him. He's blameless. He fears God and shuns evil. And Satan's reply, verse 9, he's only in it for what he can get. You protect all his stuff. But if you strike what he treasures and take it away, you'll see what he's like. He'll curse you. Very well. But I'll put all he has in your hands except you can't touch him. And we know how the story goes. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, the angels are all there again, and so is Satan, and and God draws his attention once more to Job. Verse 3, Satan, have you noticed? Job maintained his integrity, even though you incited me to ruin him without reason. And verse 4, skin for skin. He's only saving his own neck. But stretch out your hand, strike his health, and you'll see what he's like. He'll curse you. Very well. But I'll put him in your hands. Except you can't kill him. And we know how the story goes. Do you understand what these conversations are about? So I think at the heart of them is this. Is God alone the most treasured thing there is? Is knowing God such a treasure that if you lost everything else, you'd still be rich? Is God worthy to be loved for who he is alone? And the subsequent point is, in this messed up world, can God, through his own goodness, draw people back into a genuine loving relationship with himself? God says to Satan, Job knows how good I am. He's discovered that real life is found with me and he'll trust me all the way. Satan's response? You're kidding. I've had a look at your world. All those pathetic creatures you made, they're ruined beyond repair. None of them love you, not even Job. They only use you to get things for themselves. And if you want proof, take away every comfort Job has except you. See, it's a challenge, isn't it? In front of all the spiritual powers in the universe, Satan is questioning the value of God. He's questioning the transforming power of his grace. And he's questioning the integrity of God's servant. And to prove all these things, God allows Job's heart to be tested. So what Job tells us about the purpose of calamity in the life of the Christian is this. Calamity can reveal God's infinite worth, the power of His transforming grace, and the integrity of His servants. In chapter 1, verse 20, at the news that Job received, Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head, then fell to the ground in worship. In chapter 2, verse 9, even when his wife's faith crumbles away, Job maintains his integrity. See, God in his wisdom has designed that in the suffering of Job, the unseen spiritual forces would see how valuable God is and how powerful his grace is, transforming sinful people who reject God, the source of all life, to our own destruction, into people who love and trust him all the way. Discovering that God is not a means to an end, but loving and trusting him is the end itself the purpose for which we're made. And that those who would claim that God by his own goodness is not able to draw from us that true worship will be silenced and shown to be wrong. So not let me say, I know that I've experienced very little in the way of suffering. Beyond watching at my mum's bedside as the final stages of cancer laid waste her in five short weeks, I've lived a life that has been very short of pain. Many of you here have faced much more pain than me. And I'm nervous about sounding patronizing or thoughtless in the face of what some of you have gone through. But let me say, Job seems to be saying that God in his wisdom has designed through suffering a way to bring to the surface and to demonstrate dramatically that he is more valuable than wealth or health or even family. And you can trust him even if you lose all those things. And he's designed for you to discover that he is not only your ultimate treasure, but that he has truly led you to trust him. And in doing that, he saves you from putting your ultimate joy and hope in things that will not be able to satisfy and save you eternally. It will ultimately be for our good and for his glory. John Piper expresses it well when he says, Nothing glorifies God more than maintaining our stability and joy when we lose everything but God. Brothers and sisters, if in the middle of some painful tragedy you have knelt and prayed, Oh God, it is hard. I feel myself at the edge and my heart is broken, but I will trust you. Angels gasp. At the power of transforming grace, and Satan is put to shame. And finally, I just want us to see why the writer of Job here at the end wants us to know that faith in God is justified even in the face of calamity. Now, let me give you some reasons. It is justified because well it's logical did you hear Job's words in chapter 1 and verse 21? He says this on hearing the news about his family and his fortune. Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And in chapter 2 verse 10 he says, Shall we accept good from, the lo- good from God and not trouble? You get the logic of Job. He's saying, everything I have is a gift from God. I didn't really earn it. I can't say I had a right to. I've got nothing to barter with. I'm a spectator in life, watching God and needing to trust him. And if I say I'm going to trust him, it's illogical to only trust him when things seem to be good. I've got to trust him when it seems to cause trouble. He can't fail to spot the logic of his faith. And there are times in suffering when true faith needs to think logically. And needs to help other sufferers to do that. That's what Job does with his wife. But We've not put our faith in a God who meets us merely with cold logic. And because God cares about our pain as well. You'll notice as we go through this book over the, the, the subsequent weeks, you'll notice chapters 1 and 2 are prose. The next 39 chapters that God gives us are agonized, emotional poetry that swings from deep feelings of frustration through rage and despair, and finally to settled confidence in God's goodness. To Job's tears and emotions seem to be as much an expression of Job's faith as is his logic. A God never demands cold logic in the face of personal tragedy. But he does encourage faithful tears and questions that will lead you to know God's goodness. And on that, a writer does seem, even at the start of the book, to say faith in God is justified. Because God is good. Even in the face of evil. Did you spot in that strange dialogue between the Lord and Satan twice? Satan asks God to stretch out his hand against Job. Twice God says to Satan, I'll put him in your hands. I think it's the writer's subtle way of showing us that God is sovereign even over evil. So we can say Job's trouble is from the Lord, but he's not the one who does evil. As Satan exists and has real influence, God permits Satan's activity. And you saw, didn't you, Satan, although a terrifying foe, is always kept on a leash by God. God sets the boundaries for what he can do. We seem to be being shown that in this world where evil clearly exists, God will never act in an evil way against us. But because he is totally sovereign, when evil forces come at us to cause harm, he will set their course, And limit their power so that even evil intent will, in his gracious plans, turn out for your good and for his glory. And there was another servant of the Lord. He lived much later than Job. At God's command, he too faced Satan, who's sometimes called the prince of this world, and suffered at his hands. I said this. I will not speak with you much longer for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me but the world must learn that I love the father and that I do exactly what my father has commanded me. Has suffered at the hands of Satan so that the world would learn that God is the treasure. We should love above all others and his suffering in a much bigger way than Job's or yours or mine turned out for your good and for his glory let's pray together